According to scripture, what is our story? God places us in the Garden of Eden. All is perfect, all is right, all is good. But because of our own foolishness, we have been cut off from God and now we are considered his enemy. We are the enemies of God and we are on the run just like Mephibosheth. But even in that moment in which we are enemies of God, just like David does in the story, God displays his radical, generous, has said loving kindness already in Genesis 3, right after the fall. And God makes this promise. He says, I will make a way for you to be restored. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. The story of King David is a remarkable testimony of God's faithfulness to his people Israel. His life and faith journey point us to Christ, who is the promised king that would surpass David and save his people. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. And now, here's this week's message. Good morning. My name is Ted Nordham. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and we attend Gateway CRC. Our text today is 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. David asked, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. His, he is lame in both feet. Where is he? the king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Mekar, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Mekar, the son of Amiel. When Mephbosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David. He bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephbosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. This is the word of the Lord. Um, last week, we looked at this amazing chapter in our Bible, which at first glance, it looks like a bit of a convoluted story. It, it's David where he uh, says to the new prophet Nathan, I want to build a temple for God. And Nathan says, go do it. But then he has a dream and God says, no, don't do it. And then we're thinking to ourselves, well, why not? And what importance does this story have for me today? But upon further reflection, we saw that many scholars treat this as one of the most important stories in the entire Bible for the way that it stretches back to the fulfilled promises of God all the way since Genesis chapter 3 and the way it stretches forward, highlighting, foreshadowing the one true king who will make all things new. That person is Jesus. 
And so here's what we looked at in a nutshell last week. We, we learned that at its core, Christianity, the gospel, is not a bunch of things, a bunch of hoops that you need to jump through in order to get to God. What Christianity is all about is what God in Christ has done for you. And so this was the plain main thing last week. Uh, we looked at this note. Religion is spelled D-O, but the gospel is spelled D-O-N-E, done. It is all the work of Jesus. And the reason why we need to have this fresh in our mind today, friends, is because the story that we're going to look at has all of its implications laid out in the story we looked at last week, and therefore, how ought we live our lives? What is the fruit of our faith? And so we have to, we have to understand the reasons why we would be motivated to live like David, who chooses to love an enemy. Mephibosheth, say that five times fast. To love an enemy. And so you might remember last week, we talked about a trend called moralistic therapeutic deism. This is perhaps one of the, the leading ways that we believe in Christianity today, the way that we live out our faith. But as I shared with you, it is a, a false assumption. So here are some of the core tenets of moralistic therapeutic deism. Number one, the goal of your life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. That's our purpose in life. With respect to our relationship with God, God's not all that interested in a personal relationship with, him, with us. It's more like he's a, a genie in a bottle. We, we rub that bottle from time to time. He pops up. He gets us out of a bind. But he's not particularly involved in our day-to-day -day life. With respect to salvation, we say good people go to heaven when they die. And now what is our motivation to do good? Well, we better be good, nice, and fair because the dangling carrot is heaven. And I shared with you last week, that's not the gospel, that's Pearl Jam. Do you remember that? I'm not going to sing to you again. Maybe I will. We'll see, we'll see where the Lord leads us this morning. But uh, I'm not going to sing right now. So that's the essence of moralistic, therapeutic deism. It is not the gospel. It is the antithesis to the gospel. We believe that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. It is entirely the work of of Jesus. It is the work of Jesus. And so that's what we need to see. Perhaps, um, perhaps you're familiar with a Christian moralistic therapeutic deism song that, that most people in the world know. It goes like this. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. Do you know the song? He sees you when you're sleeping. He's omnipotent. He knows when you're awake. He's omniscient. He knows if you've been bad or good. He's a moralist. So be good for goodness sake. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Jesus is coming to town and good people go to heaven when they die. Did I just ruin the song for you? Sorry, not sorry. That's the essence of what religion is. Christian religion within the Canadian and American psyche. But it's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. And so we've rehearsed over the course of this series what I've just called the twin pitfalls of faith. These are the ways in which we don't stay on the straight and narrow of the gospel, but we turn the beautiful gospel of Christ into a moralistic endeavor. And there's two ways that we do this. This is how I laid it out in your note sheet. Number one is moralism. 
moralism. That's the idea that law wins and good people go to heaven when they die. Therefore, you better live a good life because God grades on a curve. That's what you got to do. But then on the flip side, you have someone on the other side who says, no, 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 no. It's not moralism. We all know that God wins. And so at the end of the day, they have an antinomian view. This is where grace wins, but it's not an embodied grace. It's not highlighted in the cross of Christ. It's a cheap grace. And we say we no longer need to live under any obligation to obey God's laws because at the end of the day, what God cares about more than anything is for me to be my true and authentic self, to live my life for me, to do whatever I want to do. And here's what I find so interesting about this, friends. Do you see how these two pitfalls is just a mishmash of moralistic therapeutic deism? Let's just look at this again. With respect to our purpose and our relationship with God, that's antinomianism. What's my purpose? Enjoy my life. Do whatever I want. Live as I please. God wants me to be happy. He wants me to be my true authentic self. That's antinomianism. And with respect to our salvation and our motives, that's moralism. Well, what do we got to do? Well, you got to be good, right, and fair because at the end of the day, God's going to get you. He grades on a curve. He knows if you're sleeping. He knows if you're awake. You better be good for goodness sake. And they just throw it in the blender. And unfortunately, this isn't the gospel. It's not the gospel. But it plagues many churches in the U.S. and Canada today. And I don't want that to be the case for you. And so here's what we saw last week. The real gospel, according to 2 Samuel chapter 7, is the central goal of our life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. With respect to our relationship with God, God means to dwell with his people. He wants to abide with you. That's why scripture says your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. When that curtain tears in two, when Jesus Christ is on the cross, where does the kabod, the glory of God go? He goes into the hearts of his people, out of the temple, into you. You are the new temple. With respect to salvation, we say it is entirely by God's grace through faith in Christ. And now here's here's the question. Here's what... All that we're looking at today is all about what is our motivation? What is the motivation to do good? If Christ has completed everything on the cross, why do we have any motivation at all to do good? Well, we see that obedience is now the fruit of our faith. The fruit of our faith. You think about a byproduct of something, like whenever you turn on your car, the engine of your car, instantly exhaust comes out. It is a byproduct. So if the engine of faith is running, then the exhaust, the byproduct of good works will overflow, not because you want to earn your way into heaven, but because you are overwhelmed by the radical generosity of your Lord and King. That is the motivation of our lives. And we see this in the person of David. So here's the plain main thing I put in your note sheet this week. Those who believe the gospel become like the gospel. Those who believe the gospel become, in a very real sense, the gospel. And the case study for that is David. We see this in David's life in this chapter today. So if you got your Bible, look again with me at verse one. It says this, David asked, 
Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul? Now, stop right there. You have to understand that um, in this particular context of this letter, that this particular question asked by a king would certainly be in order to try and find the descendants of the former king in order to put them to death. That's the goal. That's the context. In the, in the ancient Near East, if you're on the wrong side of a losing battle, and your grandfather or your father was the king, and now they are dead, then what the next king is going to do is to collect all those descendants, the living descendants, and to put them to death. We actually saw this when we went through our Daniel series. King Nebuchadnezzar, he wipes out Israel. What happens to the Israelite king? He gouges out his eyes, right? And then he kills him and his entire family. What happens when the Medes and the Persians take over the Babylonians? Same thing. What happens when the Greeks take over the Medes and Persians? Same thing. What happens when the Romans take over the Greeks? Same thing. Every single time you are on the side of a losing battle, your whole family is wiped out. The king wants to get rid of any threat to his kingdom. And so all of Israel, they know this context this is just like they know it instantly. So when they hear this, they think this. David is looking for any descendant of King Saul. Why? In order to wipe them out. In order to destroy them. And yet, the story keeps going. Verse 2. Or sorry, continue verse 1. Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show, what's the word? Help me out. Kindness. To whom I can show kindness. Hold on a second. What's going on in the story? And it's interesting. It's not just any form of kindness. This is the Hebrew word hesed. And it is one of the most important Hebrew words in your entire Bible. Because it is most used or attributed to the hesed loving kindness that God has for his people. It is the main descriptor of the Lord of the universe with respect to his interactions with you. And so sometimes in your Bible, it's translated as kindness. Other times it's translated as love. Other times loving kindness. But that's the essence of it. This is the descriptor of God for his people. And now David is saying, I want to find a descendant of my enemy and to show them the hesed love of God that God has given to me when I was an enemy of God. Do you see the gospel narrative living out? Do you see the sequence, the story? And so then we ask, well, why, why is David motivated to do this? We know it's because of what God has done for him, but there's an additional motivation. Keep looking. He says, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? Why? For Jonathan's sake. For Jonathan's sake. Jonathan was King Saul's son. And ironically, he was also David's closest friend. He was like a mentor to David. We, we heard this a couple of months ago. Pastor Adam led us in this message. And I want you to have it fresh in your mind again. So we're moving to 1 Samuel chapter 20, in which Jonathan says these words to David. He says, David, show me unfailing kindness. That's hesed, loving kindness. Like the Lord's hesed, kindness, as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. Look, uh, Jonathan, he understands that David is the anointed future king of Israel. He sees this. 
in ways that his father Saul does not. Saul is overwhelmed. He's trying to wipe out David to get rid of the threat. And yet, Jonathan, he understands. The hand of blessing is upon you. But don't forget me, Jonathan says. Do not ever cut off your kindness, there it is again, from my family. Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. And then this next part, this is the culminating moment, verse 16. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord call David's enemies to an account. And Jonathan and David reaffirm their oath to one another out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. What is the essence and the fulfillment of the law according to Jesus? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus would even take that a step further when he would later say to his disciples, this is in Matthew chapter 5, he says, but I tell you, love your enemies. That's what David is doing in the story with Mephibosheth. He is an enemy of David. Within this cultural context, they are enemies. Mephibosheth is a threat. If Saul is dead and Jonathan is dead, then the firstborn son of Jonathan is next in line to be king from the house of Saul. That's a threat. Wipe him out. And David says, I will not wipe him out. I will treat him as a friend and I will love him as I love myself. I will choose to love my enemies. So once we get to 2 Samuel chapter 9, Jonathan has already died. He died on the battlefield with his father Saul. And so once we pick up at the story, we see that David remembers the covenant promise that he made to Jonathan, and he's looking for any descendant within Saul's house to whom he can show loving kindness, has said love for the sake of his servant Jonathan. And then we pick up at verse 3. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show has said loving kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan, and he is lame in both feet. And we're going to see this. He's actually, the, the author is going to mention this three times. He's lame in both feet. He's lame in both feet. He's lame in both feet, and it sounds rather odd, but we're going to see the reasons why as we move forward looking at this story. So, a little bit of context here. 2 Samuel chapter 4 is the story in which we discover that both Saul and Jonathan have been put to death. And then the author pivots the camera and brings it all the way to the kingdom, and there's Mephibosheth and his, his nanny or his nurse, and they hear the word that his grandpa and his dad are dead. And so instantly, in a nervous panic, she picks up Mephibosheth and she starts running for the hills. Why? Well, we've rehearsed the reason already. Because he is a descendant of Saul and Jonathan. He's next in line to be king. And so she knows something. She knows that Mephibosheth's life is in danger. He's about to die, either at the hand of the Philistines or at the hand of David, either way, he is threat number one to the kingdom. And so they run for the hills. But in that nervous panic, the story goes that she, she drops Mephibosheth. I'm not sure if it's you know, off a cliff or down a hill. We, we don't know the context. We just know that she drops him when she's anxiously running away, and he breaks both of his legs, and he is lame in both feet for the rest of his life. 
That's the context. So he's physically unable to walk. And then here's what we see in the story. She has this idea that she is totally convinced that Mephibosheth will die, and yet David calls for Mephibosheth to come into his presence. Now, remember what I told you about the cultural expectations. He's coming before the throne. If you are Mephibosheth and you know this is the way things go, descendants come before a king, they're wiped out. They're put to death. Verse 6. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, and he fell on his face. Probably thinking to himself, that's it. It's over. I was able to go in hiding for over 20 years. We know that Mephibosheth, he actually has his own children at this point. So he's probably in his late 20s, right? He's been on the run his entire life since he was five until his late 20s. But hey, I've been found. Here it comes. Verse six, the end, the end of verse six, David said, Mephibosheth, do not be afraid for I will surely show you hesed, loving kindness, for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Circle, highlight, underline. This is the clincher passage of this entire chapter. Now let's, let's just step back for a moment. Do you see the story to whom this story points. Maybe you're, you're growing tired of me telling you this, but I, I want to keep reminding you that all of First and Second Samuel, and indeed this story, it's not just in your Bible to highlight a really cool story in which David shows said loving kindness to one of his enemies. It is in your Bible to point to the true and greater story that is fulfilled in the person of Jesus and what he has given to all of us. And so here's the way that I put in, it in your note sheet. Mephibosheth is a stand-in for all of us, for you and for me. According to Scripture, what is our story? God places us in the Garden of Eden. All is perfect. All is right. All is good. But because of our own foolishness, we have been cut off from God, and now we are considered his enemy. We are the enemies of God, and we are on the run, just like Mephibosheth. But even in that moment in which we are enemies of God, just like David does in the story, God displays his radical, generous, his said loving kindness already in Genesis 3, right after the fall. And God makes this promise. He says, I will make a way for you to be restored, reunited, so that you can enter back into the kingdom and into my presence. I promise to do this. The first promise of God in all of scripture is that I will redeem you. I will bring you back. And we see in the story that Mephibosheth and David is the stand-in for us and for God. And we see it in beautiful color and texture and clarity within this story. We see ourselves within this. And then a thousand years after the story, we see it. A true and better David arrives. And he says, according to Romans chapter 5, that while we were yet enemies of God, while we were yet sinners, Christ 
died for us. He became our propitiation. He became our advocate who appeased the wrath of God. He became our righteousness so that we could be reunited with God once again. And so in light of that, I think the only appropriate response to this message is to do exactly what Mephibosheth does in this story. Look, look at your Bible, verse 8. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? A dead dog. It's interesting. Um, Psalm chapter 8 says this, Who am I, Lord, that you are mindful of me? Who am I that you care for me or that you love me? Do you know who the author of Psalm chapter 8 is? It's David. And I've shared with you a couple of times already in this series, the theme of First and Second Samuel is that God humbles the proud and he exalts the humble. And so the, the posture of our hearts when we stand before God should be similar to that of Mephibosheth. To say, Lord, who am I that you are even mindful of me, let alone that you would care for me, that you would provide a way for me? That Mephibosheth, he says that I am a, a dead dog. We think of the reformer Martin Luther. He says, oh, the worm that I am. We have such a low view of ourselves in comparison to the sovereign creator of the universe whom we have blasphemed, whom we have run from, whom we have become enemies to. And yet because of the love of God in Christ Jesus, we can now be reunited with him. That is the posture of our hearts when we stand before the throne. And because of what Christ has done, it means we get to experience the radical generosity of God in ways that far surpass even what Mephibosheth experienced with David. And so there's a few things that Mephibosheth experiences. Let me just highlight them for you, and then we'll walk through them. Three things. There's actually four. I'll note them, but we're only going to look at three today. The first promise from David, from the king, is do not be afraid. The second one is come and eat at my table. The third one we see is that David goes out of his way to bring him back into the inheritance from Saul, but we're not going to spend as much time on that one. And then the fourth one is, he says, be my son, be my daughter as you sit at the king's table. So let's look at the first one. David says, Mephibosheth, don't be afraid. And God says to me, Justin, do not be afraid. Romans 5 verse 10 says, for if while we were still enemies of God, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? We used to be enemies, but now we are his friends, Jesus says. Scripture says that there will come a day in which every single one of us experiences a day of judgment. That day is coming for us. And on that day, everything that we've ever done will be laid bare. We will be naked before God and he will expose all the ways that we have been deceitful, treacherous. We have lied and, and theft and slander and gossip and all the ways that we have harmed God and his reputation and we have harmed our neighbor. All of it will be exposed. 
And in that moment, God the judge, he will pick up his gavel, about to throw it down in righteous judgment. And just before he does, God the Son will stand up and he will serve as our defense attorney. And he will say to God the Father, do not look at the stupidity and the unrighteousness of Justin. Look at the righteousness of me. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become his righteousness, his imputed righteousness unto us so that every single time God the Father looks at you, he doesn't see the imperfection. He doesn't see the brokenness and the foolishness of your decisions, that he sees the perfection of his son Jesus. And the gavel will be thrown out. The judgment will be thrown out. And our mourning will turn into dancing. Our sadness will turn into joy, and we will be reunited and reinstated with God Most High. And so Scripture says to us, do not be afraid. But it's even more than that. We see that David also says, eat at my table. Eat at my table. See, Mephibosheth, he's not only tolerated, he's not just given provisions and then says, you know, go back to that hole that you were living in. I won't come after you, I won't kill you, but I never want to see your face again. He invites him in, he treats him as a member of his family, he's reunited to the royal kingdom, all those things. We read uh, in Isaiah chapter 25, this beautiful verse foreshadowing what is yet to come for everyone who bears the name of Jesus. On this mountain, the Lord will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And then we see in the person of Jesus, so many banquet feasts, so many references to parties or weddings or banquets, even Jesus' first miracles, turning water into wine at a wedding, or the story in which Jesus is sitting down eating with tax collectors and sinners. This is Luke 15. He tells a story of a prodigal son who runs off, but then when he returns, he finds the chesed, love, kindness, faithfulness of this father who says, quick, kill the fattened calf. Let's have a feast and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and now he is alive. He was lost and now he was found. That's the story of all of us. We read in the book of Revelation, this is Revelation 21, the apostle John sees this great vision of the wedding feast of the Lamb in which all of us, like Mephibosheth, we will bow down prostrating ourselves and worship the Lamb who was slain, who made a way when there was no way, and now we can have a feast and celebrate in his presence. We think of the sacrament of communion, a celebration of all that God has done, where he is both the bread that we eat and the wine that we drink. He is the fulfillment of all of his promises. Scripture is filled with references to sitting at the banquet feast of God. But it's even more than that. I feel like a a late night infomercial dude. But wait, there's more. It's even more than that. Number three, we see this in verse 11. Look at your Bible. Mephibosheth ate at David's table, hear this, like one of the king's sons. Like one of the king's sons. 
Mephibosheth was treated like a royal son. Hmm. And that's our story too, friends. We were once enemies of God, just like Mephibosheth, but now we are his children. And Paul, he packs a powerful punch when he highlights this in Romans chapter 8. He says this, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be an heir? We see this really interesting part of the story in which not only David reinstates him, but he gives him back his inheritance. And you'd have to imagine that this would have been a very unpopular decision by David. Because the whole nation now is surrounded based on one idea. They do not like the house of Saul. They don't like the house of Saul because he brought about their destruction. And now here's David. He finds this guy named Mephibosheth. And he says, you know what? Everything that your grandfather owned, I'm going to give back to you. It's yours. And yet, that's what Scripture says about us. We are heirs of God. We are co-heirs with Christ Jesus. You think of the story of Luke 15. Not only does he get the best robe, not only do they have a banquet feast, but he is given the signet ring. He's brought back into the family inheritance. And that's our story too. Exactly the same story. It's really interesting to consider some of the characteristics of Mephibosheth one thing to consider is Mephibosheth literally means man of shame. That's his name. He's a man of shame. We also see that Scripture is repeatedly saying that Mephibosheth was lame in both feet. It seems like the author goes out of his way to say this. In fact, if your Bibles are open, look at verse 13. At the end of this beautiful story in which he's reinstated, he's brought before the banquet feast, he sits at the king's table, you think, like, what a great way to end the book. But one more time, the author has to remind you, the end of verse 13, oh, and by the way, he can't walk. <laughs> By the way, he's lame in both feet. Why, why does he keep saying that? Well, you have to remember that they are in an agrarian and military society. And so if you cannot walk, that means you cannot make a contribution in that time frame. Like for us today, if, if you can't walk, if you're in a wheelchair, perhaps you could get a, a desk job, right? There's still many ways that you can make a contribution. But within this culture, they were considered a leech upon the society. And yet David invites him in. He invites him in. And then the third thing that is really interesting, it's, it says that Mephibosheth comes from a place called Lodabar, which literally means no pasture or nowhere. And so what's the purpose of all that? Here's the way I put it in your note sheet. Mephibosheth is a nobody from nowhere, with nothing to offer. And spiritually speaking, that was our condition too. Do you feel that? Spiritually speaking, that is our condition too. And if you want to understand the gospel, you have to sit with this for a while. Because the very first thing that you should experience when you hear this message is it brings about an offense to you. You're offended by it. Is this the case? Well, when you see the message of the gospel that we have been running from God and that there is no way that we can return from him, then you might come to the realization that this is true. And only then 
can you now accept the radical generosity, the chesed, loving kindness of God, but you have to walk through that first. You have to come to terms with the fact that Justin, or fill in your name, is a nobody from nowhere with nothing to offer. That is our predicament. That is our story. Now can we humbly prostrate ourselves before the Lord? Can we humble ourselves before God? We actually had a picture of that this morning. A beautiful picture of it. Witnessing the baptism of baby Keith and baby Laney. I think we got a picture of how the gospel works. So I got a question for parents here, for Brent and Cheryl, for Steve and Katie. My question is, um, have your children started contributing around the house yet? Have they uh, started cleaning up their toys? Do they even wipe their own bums yet? You know, what, What's the contribution of babies? Well, let me tell you, I, I made a list. They poop, fart, eat, sleep, and scream. That's about it, right? They, they don't really make any other contributions. Oh, and they help with sleep deprivation. That's, that's a real gift that they give as well. And yet you love them. Infinitely more, that's a picture of how God treats us as his people. He loves us even though we cannot do anything at all. And the only difference between Keith and Laney and us is they might actually make a contribution someday. They might say, thanks, Mom and Dad. They might help out around the house. We will never be able to make that contribution. We have nothing to offer, and yet God helps us anyway. So here's the last word. God's grace is simply this. It is his said loving kindness shown to you even though you don't deserve it, you cannot earn it, and you will never repay it. You will never repay it. And even, jo- even though my job as, as a preacher is to repeatedly highlight to you this central message that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ, because we are broken, sinful people, we tend to forget this message. We're kind of like um, Drew Barrymore in 51st Dates. Have any of you seen that movie? Anyone? Couple of you. Let me, let me give you the essence of the story. She suffers from amnesia. She has short-term memory loss, and so she has to live out the same life every single day of her life, reminding her of the faithfulness of her family, and infinitely more, that is the story of all of us. Why? Because as broken, sinful people, it is really, really difficult for us to truly believe in our heart of hearts that God accepts us and loves us, even though we can make no contribution on our own. It is so hard for us to accept that message. And yet, that's the essence of the gospel. Here's the plain main thing again. Those who believe the gospel become like the gospel. Those who believe the gospel become like the gospel. And so, here's a way of thinking about this. Picture us sitting at Starbucks. We got a coffee in our hand and we're asking this question. What do we do with all this? How do we, how do we live this out Especially knowing, again, if we can uh, look at the screen with moralistic therapeutic deism one more time, especially recognizing that the essence of the gospel is not this, but it is this, and we see our motive now is obedience, is to be the fruit of our faith in Jesus. What does that look like on a practical scale? How can we live this out on our day-to-day life? And I think it starts with this question. Do you have the fruit of faith? Are you living into this reality? 
we see a really interesting thing about this story, and I, this is the reason why I started the way that I did. You cannot read 2 Samuel chapter 9 without reading 2 Samuel chapter 7. It all starts with David being overwhelmed by the radical grace, the Hesed loving kindness of God. And after he experiences that, he is like a cup that is filled up, pressed down, pouring over the sides, and he just can't help himself but display the Hesed love of God to everyone he comes into contact with. And he goes for the lowest of low. He says, I need to find an enemy. I need to find the person where the whole world would say he's the first person on my list of who I want to wipe out, who I want to get rid of, who I deserve to treat a certain way. And I'm going to go after them and I'm going to show them the Hesed love of God because that's what God has done with me. They're just overwhelmed by it. And my hope for you, friends, for those of us who have stepped over the line to follow Jesus, that this would be you as well. That you would experience this in a radical way. So here's a way of thinking about this. You will never become generous like David unless you see that you are first in the chair of Mephibosheth. You have to associate with Mephibosheth before you can associate with David. Have you experienced the radical grace and generosity of God? Because like Jesus says, those who have been forgiven much, love much. And those who have been forgiven little, love little. What does the fruit of your faith display in terms of your faith of Jesus, with Jesus? Do you love much? Or do you love little? So here's how I'd like to close this morning. I'm going to invite up the praise team. They're going to come and join us at this time. And I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And I think for those of us who are in this room, there, there's probably a couple of things that we can do during this time. Maybe there's someone here who's never accepted this amazing gift of the Hesed love of God. And this is an opportunity to do that. For the others of you, maybe you have intellectually give assent to the idea that Jesus is Lord of the universe, but kind of like Mephibosheth, you've been on the run. You've been running from God, and God is calling you back to sit at the banquet feast. And for still others of you, maybe, just maybe, God is pricking your conscience saying there is a Mephibosheth in your life that he wants you to reach out to to display the radical love and generosity of the God that we serve. And I think for all of us, there's an opportunity to do this. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to lead us in prayer, and I'm going to leave a little bit of time for you to get right with God, to ask the Lord to put upon your heart someone that you can treat like David treated Mephibosheth. So let's go to our God in prayer. Lord Jesus, I see now that I am just like Mephibosheth before you, a former enemy, a treasonous traitor, a spreader of shame, a nothing from nowhere, spiritually crippled, and yet you invited me in. You ran after me and you brought me into your presence. 
And Lord, your word says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, Lord Jesus, I repent of the ways that I have been running from you. And I ask that you would draw me back to yourself. Lord Jesus, in this moment of silence, help us to discern our next step of obedience. As we have recalled already, for some of us, it might be a moment to accept the generous grace that you have lavished upon us. For others, it might be the opportunity to get right with you and to see the ways that we've been running. And for others, you might want to bring us to mind, who is a Mephibosheth that I can pour out the Hesed radical generosity upon? So in this time, Lord Jesus, lead us as we pray. Well, you've been listening to the latest message in our series through First and Second Samuel, tracing the life of David, the Shadow King. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway.